Our text for this evening is out of the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 24. We'll be reading the whole chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 24. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aor and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites. And they came to Dan and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negeb of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall uh, sorry. Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up. Raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. 
And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of, of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Question for you all. We've often reflected upon what kinds of power would I want? What kind of power do you want? Now some of us, our minds might go straight to superpowers. It might be super speed or moving things with our thoughts or invisibility. I know I would like to move things with my thoughts because then I could move myself and that's flying and that's two for one. However, most of us would think more realistically about such a question and see power and fame and recognition. For example, in today's age, going viral on social media and being followed by millions, if not billions of people is a sure way to fame and fortune we have never imagined. Moreover, most of us are pretty inclined to see power and money and riches. I can venture to say that most of us, if not all of us, have thought about, what if I won the lottery? <laughs> what, I, what would I do if I won the Powerball that reached up into the billions of dollars? In short, many of us desire some form of power, even in addition to the power that we already have, in our current stations in life. But is this desire for power a good thing? Power meaning the ability to influence others, to have access to more resources than we already have. What we'll see from our text today is that power comes from pride and from pride comes power. And the self-eating and self-perpetual spiral was the cause of King David's sinful census. And in turn, such a census was the means of great judgment upon Israel. However, despite David being in the midst of such intense judgment, he knew that mercy was to be found only in the Lord who is both a God of perfect judgment and a God of enduring mercy. Indeed, from this episode in David's life, we are reminded that we are to always run to our Heavenly Father for mercy in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of all of our problems. 
for mercy is found not in man but in the Lord. And we will see this truth as we walk through the, the three main sections of this passage. David's senseless census, David's elected epidemic, and David's providential purchase. A senseless census, an elected epidemic, and providential purchase. But before getting into our first point regarding David's senseless census, a brief word should be given about the opening verses of this chapter, specifically the language of the Lord inciting David to take this census. Because admittedly, this is shocking language that the Lord would incite David to ultimately sin in this way. And it's shocking because we know that this, in some sense, cannot be true of God in such a way that it indicts the Lord. As James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So in light of such a truth, how do we square this circle, it seems? Well, the most important detail, or one of the most important details in this passage is first seen in the fact that this is an act of God's wrath against Israel. As the beginning of chapter 24 says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And so God is not arbitrarily or randomly causing David to take the census. It's a, rather a means by which God is using to pour out just judgment upon Israel. Specifically for their sin and disobedience to him. And another key detail come comes from the chronicler's account in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1 where the Lord is not credited for inciting David, but rather Satan is credited for inciting David. So we see that in this passage, 2 Samuel 24, God is the one who incites, while in Chronicles, Satan. And if we try to harmonize these two accounts, we come to really the same theological conclusion as the book of Job. That God is in total, absolute, exhaustive control over absolutely everything, including our own suffering and our own sin. But he uses means to accomplish his ultimate purposes as Satan himself is used by the Lord in Job. And so here in this case, God uses Satan to bring about David's sin. And of course, this does not answer all problems and all theological paradoxes with this, but it helps us to begin to answer and begin to understand something about how God can even use our personal sin as a means of judgment, not only upon ourselves, but on those within our spheres of influence. As the Lord uses David's sin to bring about judgment upon the people whom David represented, And this ultimately leads us to perhaps an even more baffling question, the sin of David, specifically David's census taking. Why is taking a census, numbering the people of Israel, something so grievous 
that a pestilence was to come and kill 70,000 men. Well, if we look to the Old Testament passages relevant to census taking, there are three main ones, and there's the laws given for census taking in Exodus chapter 30, and then there are two censuses taken in the book of Numbers for the first generation in the wilderness, and then the second generation in the wilderness, and then there's this census in 2 Samuel 24. So the biblical data for understanding why census taking is so wrong is rather slim, However, we can start to grasp something as we look at Exodus 30, verse 12, when it says, When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number, when you number them. And this ransom was a tax that would be paid to the temple. And we see that even though Exodus doesn't explain why such a ransom needs to be paid. It does clearly say that a ransom needs to be paid. So it's assuming that something is up with census taking. And obviously from our passage, David is considered guilty of sin. And so it's hard to be sure, but it would seem that in 2 Samuel chapter 24, our passage that David is acting out of self-reliant means. He is acting out of his own power and his own authority as king to take a census, as compared to when the Lord had ordered censuses to be taken in the book of Numbers. Specifically, it would seem that David is wanting to number his armies and muster his forces However, he's doing so outside of the guidance and wisdom of the Lord. And if we compare how David is acting here to how David acts in 2 Samuel 5, specifically when David inquires of the Lord in how to strategically engage the Philistines. If we compare those two things in 2 Samuel 5, David is humbling himself to the wisdom and guidance of the Lord in battle. But in this passage, there is no inquiry of the Lord. There is no seeking guidance from him. And so David seems to be acting out of pride and out of his own wisdom. And despite the protests of Joab, David's general, who is morally dubious and questionable himself, David persists and numbers Israel. And we see, therefore, the pride of power, and the power of pride. David utilizes his power as king to accomplish his own desired ends, despite it being wrong in the eyes of the Lord and despite the protests from Joab. Pride and power feed off of each other like two leeches attached to each other for life sucking upon each other. Power, as I said, the ability to influence others around you and possessing access to resources in order to contribute to such influence. Power often increases the occasions and opportunities for sinning. Simply take the other major sin of David in mind. 
David's affair with Bathsheba. Do you think that any Joe Schmo could have ordered his men at a whim to go take any woman that he wanted out of lustful desire? Or do you think any man could have just written a note and had her husband go to the battlefield to be killed without anyone assuming any kind of foul play whatsoever? Such an account of David's sin demonstrates that it's precisely because of David's kingly status and authority and power that he was able to be tempted and commit incredible grievous sin without immediate consequences. The Lord himself had to come and speak through his prophet to incur guilt and conviction upon David. This is what power so often does for all of us. Despite our desire for more influence and more resources, the Lord graciously keeps us in our current station because he knows what sinners we could be if we had more power, if we had more resources, if we had more influence. We do desire such power, and as we talked about in the beginning, it comes through the desire to win the lottery, the desire to be recognized and possess fame and fortune. It comes through that rat race for that one promotion and pay raise. And with the obtaining of power like this comes pride, pride that is specifically blinding, as David was blind to Joab's warning. The pride of power blinds us from wisdom, warning, and admonition, and such pride manifests itself even with what power we have now. Power in our relationships, jobs, and responsibilities still induces us to be prideful and self-reliant, often so, so often failing to heed advice and wisdom from others. And in the words of one theologian, Sin will be manifested with most devastating effect by the powerful. Such a claim goes flatly against all our hopes of making enough social progress to finally eliminate sin. The claim that sin will be manifested with most devastating effect by the powerful implies that eliminating poverty and bad parenting and inadequate education will not reduce the proclivity of humankind to do evil, but may even increase the means to do evil. This is why we need a perfect redeemer. And this is why David's sinful census was, in fact, so sinful. It was characterized by prideful power and powerful pride. But David soon recognizes this, as verse 10 says, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. The conviction over sin begins in David's heart, and he confesses his sin to the Lord, acknowledging that he had acted pridefully and foolishly. And such a detail is quite striking because it reinforces that even though David stumbled at this time of taking the census, 
he is still characterized as being a man who is after the Lord's heart, a man devoted to the Lord. He does not bury the feeling of conviction under self-justification and excuses. He allows the burden of his sin to flow out in confession and repentance. And do you stifle the, the feeling of conviction? David's example here is wonderful for us in terms of how we handle conviction, that we don't try to justify ourselves, but we allow its natural flow in confession and repentance. But returning to David, but because the Lord is holy and just, judgment must be poured out on sin. And David is guilty and so is Israel. Again, remember that the very purpose of this is because the Lord is angry with Israel for their sin. And so the Lord speaks through his prophet Gad to pronounce three options for judgment that David is granted the ability to choose from. David is given the choice of three years of famine in the land, three months of being pursued by Israel's enemies, and then pestilence for three days. David ultimately chooses the last option, or he elects an epidemic, precisely because of the mercy of the Lord. David did not choose one of these options arbitrarily or randomly, but in fact explicitly says, I am in great distress, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Famine results in violent skirmishes over food and even cannibalism, as Pastor Larry has talked about in a series in First and Second Kings, and then obviously being overrun and chased by Israel's foes involves the agency of men. It is only pestilence that is outside the control and influence of human agency. And so David chooses it precisely because he trusts that the Lord will, in fact, be merciful. And David's reasoning here actually reminds us of the prophetic words referenced last Sunday, the prophetic words of Hosea in chapter 11, verse 9, when the Lord says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. David knew that mercy was to be found in the Lord even in the midst of severe judgment. Like traveling through the thick, stormy part of a hurricane right into the eye of the storm that is the calmest. Or when a father is playing with his children and the father's pretending to be a big, hairy monster. He's chasing the children around and He's finally able to get them in a corner where there's no place for them to run and he's slowly approaching them and the suspense is building and finally his children run to the one safe place right into their own father's arms. And so David knows the safest place in the midst of judgment is to run into the heavenly arms of the Lord's mercy. To run full speed into the Lord himself. And David, fortunately for him, was right. The Lord is in fact merciful even in the midst of incredible judgment. 
Again, reading verses 15 through 17. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And so we see here that supernatural element of the elected, elected epidemic, that this was caused by the angel of the Lord an angel of death reminiscent of the very powers which passed over the Hebrews on, the fate, on that fateful night in Egypt. And this angel of death ceases from destroying Jerusalem at the Lord's command. And I personally like a certain detail in the chronicler's account in First Chronicles 21 that says, And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. Standing before this angel of judgment and terror and dread, this angelic dreadnought, David falls to his knees and intercedes for the people he represents. It's as if David says, I was the one who sinned. I am the one who is guilty, so let the angelic sword fall on me, but not my people. But the Lord abstains totally from his punishment and even shows mercy to David, who is willing to take on the fullness of God's wrath in this moment. And instead, in a strange twist, the Lord commands that David purchase the land which the armed angel had hovered over, the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. And he commands them to build an altar on it and offer sacrifices. Arana is a Jebusite, so he's not an Israelite. But out of reverence for the king, he wanted to give the land to David. David, however, understood the significance of both fully obeying the Lord, because the Lord had specifically said to purchase it and offer sacrifices on it, and the longevity of actually purchasing this property, this property which was assigned for a providential purpose, this property being the foundation for when the temple would be built, this property being closely located where Christ himself would be crucified. And so David understands also that genuine sacrifice involves more than just ritual motions and being offered freebies and then doing everything at ease. He knows that genuine sacrifice involves actual cost. As he says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so David purchases the threshing floor, builds an altar, and offers peace and burnt offerings, which officially end the pestilence in the land. However, God's wrath would not be officially ended God's wrath would continue and even manifest in greater judgment in the exile of Israel from the land itself. But just as God's wrath persisted, so did God's mercy. 
as he brought the Israelites back and he even had a second temple rebuilt. However, sin persisted and God's wrath was not satisfied up until the coming of a specific Jew, a specific Jew who is a son, a descendant of David himself. Jesus Christ, who is perfectly righteous, became the object and target of the fullness of God's wrath. The totality of the three options that were given to David wrapped up into one event, the very crucifixion of Christ. When the armed angel of judgment came upon Jerusalem during David's reign, the Lord commanded him to halt his march, sheathe his sword, and abstain from his slaughter. But when the armed angel of judgment came upon Jerusalem during the reign of Herod and Pontius Pilate, the black sword of judgment fell with full force upon the very Son of God as he hung upon the cross. When King David interceded for his people, God commanded him to offer sacrifices to appease the wrath of pestilence. But when Jesus Christ interceded for all who would follow him, he offered himself as a final and fully atoning sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world and removes the wrath of those who would trust in Jesus and those who die with Jesus. When David purchased the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite on Mount Moriah, it was the very place for the building of the temple wherein the holy presence of Yahweh was centralized. But when Christ was nailed upon that wooden cross, he was hoisted up and displayed in shame on top of Golgotha, likewise located on Mount Moriah. And when he breathed his last, the veil that separated the holy presence of the Lord in the temple forever tore in two. Christian, I want you to understand that in this episode of David's life, the shadows of the gospel are uniquely heavy. It is as if the substance of the life, work, and person of Jesus Christ is weighing down and imprinting this moment, this episode of David's life and reign. But also, I want you to mark the contrasts. The Lord came in wrath against Israel by inciting David to sin. But when the Lord came in wrath against Jesus, it was not because Jesus was incited to sin. He was actually invited to bear sin. Your sin. My sin. And it's punishment. David was a king who ran after God's heart but still gave into the pride of power and the power of pride Jesus was a king who not only ran after the heart of God, his father, but was himself God. And he was a king who fully resisted the power of pride and pride of power and instead embraced the holiness of humility and the seriousness of servanthood. And now as risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, Christ rules with perfect power and powerful perfection. And if you have placed your faith in Christ as your Lord, as your Redeemer, as your Refuge, as your Savior, then He is your King. 
He is your king who is merciful and righteous and will never forsake you. And as your king, he is the one who holds all power in the palm of his hands. And he, in fact, gives us any and all power we may have in order to be used for his purposes. So know this. Any and all power that is not derived from or rooted in Christ is power that can only serve self. All power that is not derived from or rooted in Christ is power that can only serve self. And the only way we can use our resources, our influences, our money, no matter how large or small, for the sake of loving God and loving others is when we consciously acknowledge that we are mere stewards of our stations, stations assigned to us by our sovereign King Jesus. And such an acknowledgement of our stations and our derivative power as parents, teachers, bosses, leaders, siblings, and whatever you might fulfill in your station, the acknowledgement of that helps us to embrace a Christ-like humility. All that we have is a gift from the one who not only owns all things, but has made and sustains all things. We are mere stewards. So in short, the power that you do have in Christ is the power of resurrection life. Power that puts sin to death and lives unto righteousness. Power that puts others before ourselves. Power that uses influence and resources for the glory of God and the expansion of Christ's kingdom. This is the radical transformation that happens when powerful pride and prideful power meets the judgment and mercy of God, specifically the mercy and judgment of God as seen in the cross of Christ. Their mercy and judgment collide as the Son of God bears our sin for the love for us. And as you hear this, you may feel the pangs of conviction like David, you know that you struggle with pride and the desire for power, the desire for resources. If you could just have something more, you know your flesh still struggles against you. And if this is you, then just like David, flee to the merciful arms of your heavenly father. That's the only safe place. That's the only place where true, genuine mercy towards our sin can be found. Know that in Christ there is mercy and in Christ he is your righteous and merciful king. And if you don't know Christ as your righteous and merciful king, then you will know him as the king of righteous judgment. If you do not know him now as the king of righteous mercy, you will know him as the king of righteous judgment and he will come again with his divine sword and will slay you where you stand. Because no sin, no darkness, no evil can even enter into the holy presence of God. 
And this is why the work of Christ is so precious because it was Jesus himself who fell upon that divine sword for our sakes, the sword that we were meant to receive. It is only by trusting in Christ as your redeeming king that you can ever enter into the kingdom of light and eternal bliss and joy and love. And such a kingdom is reserved for all who trust in Jesus. And so now let us embody such a kingdom now as we wait for his coming, knowing that he is our righteous and merciful king. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise your name. We thank you that you are a God of judgment and justice and holiness and wrath. And we thank you that you are a God of mercy, grace, love, and patience. And we thank you that you sent your own son to suffer the punishment that we deserve precisely because of our sin. You are holy and we are not. But in Christ, you are sanctifying us. You have justified us. And we wait to be glorified, to be brought fully into your presence. As we wait, help us to live in your mercy and in your righteousness in how we think, speak, and act. Would you help us for the remainder of this week to honor you and glorify you in all that we do. In your name we pray, amen.